Developmental language disorder. One in 14. DLD. The DLD project. The Talking DLD podcast. Brought to you by the DLD project. Hi everyone, it's Sean Zigimtis here from the DLD project. Have you ever wondered what the difference is between autism and DLD? My special guest for this episode is Andrew Whitehouse, Angela Wright Bennett Professor of Autism Research and Director of Clinikid at the Telethon Kids Institute. Together, we're about to take you on a deep dive through this complex space. So welcome everyone to today's episode of the Talking DLD podcast. I'm pretty excited to be talking to Professor Andrew Whitehouse, who I'm going to ask up straight away to say, can you tell us about your connection uh, to developmental language disorder? Sure. And and thank you so much for inviting me, Sean. I've been such an admirer of your work over many years, and it's oh. it's just a, a thrill to, to to be here on your podcast. Oh, um, thank I, you. I, so I'm I'm Andrew Whitehouse. I, I originally trained as a speechy, so it's a bit weird to have two bloke speechies talking to each other. Um, Very uncommon. Um, mm-hmm. It is. It's the unicorn is occurring. Um, uh, and um, I yeah, I worked clinically for a few years. I but but I really turned my hand to research pretty quickly and. Uh, found a home um, and a particular passion uh, in the area of kids who develop differently, but really a focus on kids with autism. And um, my professional life has sort of t- taken me to a, a few different places. I was at Oxford with uh, Dorothy Bishop for many years yeah. and, and then um, came back in, uh, to Perth, Australia, where I have set up my um, research team at the Telephone Kids Institute. And, um, and we run a busy uh, clinical research centre. Uh, we see lots and lots of kids for clinical services, but, but really trying to find uh, new and innovative ways to understand kids in all their beautiful complexity and wonder and, and how we can best support them. And, and, and often that um, kids with autism, of course, um, uh, the, the alliance between DLD and autism are, are very blurry and, and, and hopefully I get a chance to argue that we should probably not even look at lines. So, mm. um, but that's really my connection. Awesome. And I mean, your background is, of course, in that you did do, you've looked at what was formerly specific language impairment, now DLD yeah. and some research, and I believe a member of the Catalyze Consortium as well. So... Yes, I was, and I was really, really um, pleased to be part of that. Absolutely, my time um, with Dorothy over in, in in the UK was really focusing on on kids with specific language impairment, what we called um, back then, but really in the focus at, and the crossover with um, autism in particular. And that was really a quite a formative time for me to understand just the the complete. Uh, uh, limitations of diagnostic systems and particularly when it comes to kids with neurodevelopmental conditions and um, I was really pleased to be invited onto the Catalyze uh, Consortium and which seems to have really had a significant uh, effect on um, uh, clinical practice in particular and that's not a, a, an insignificant thing so really the uh, the leaders of that consortium uh, really need to take so much credit for that. Absolutely I wonder if um you know, they probably didn't anticipate the level of uptake that's taken place since the publication. Well, they've got a podcast. And yeah. They've got your podcast now. Well, exactly. I mean, if you'd asked me when we were starting up the DLD project, I would have said to you, look, look, we're just dipping our toes in. We're not sure if this is something that will take off because we're not really sure what the need will be. And as it turned out, the need has been absolutely huge. And that's been a wonderful thing because, as you said, clinicians have got a great deal of interest in uptake because I feel well, what they've been saying to me is that DLD resonates more with their clinical representation of the kids in their, you know, their caseloads, whether it's in schools or private practices or wherever it might be. And so I think that that functional impact has been really, um, really key. So I couldn't couldn't agree with you more. And and certainly um, the notion of a beautiful, neat category of specific language impairment was always very difficult to find on the ground level. Mm -hmm. Um, And research carried it on for a long, long time. And and, and, uh, I I feel this is an example of research catching up with clinical life. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's great to catch up with you because I think we would have, I mean, I've come from, I've kind of done the, come from the ASD world initially, which is where I became more familiar with your work and I've moved into more this DLD specific space. But the overlap for me has always been really interesting. Um, And I think it's been a few years, I think, since I've seen you last, you know, and chatted about this, but I'm really excited because the reason why we've invited you today is so many people email us saying, you know, I've got a child who, you know, we're diagnosing, you know, we think they met DLD criteria, you know, 
but they may be on the spectrum. How does this sort of all fit together? And what I really hope is that clinicians, but also families will get something really helpful out of our chat today, which is, you know, it's not always 100% clear sometimes, is it? No, it's certainly not. And I'll say something provocative up front, but then mm. hopefully I'll explain why I sort of say this. My, my, my thing about DLD versus ASD is, firstly, here's the provocative thing. Who cares? That, that, that's mm. the first thing. Now, let me get into why I sort of say that. Now, yeah. uh, understanding history of what, how and why we diagnose kids with different things is, is, is a really interesting thing. And certainly... Um, um, when we started to understand um, of different diagnostic clusters, like kids who develop differently and all show the similar types of behaviours like autism, we thought that there would be great clinical advantage in describing these kids. Now, what we know through genetics, what we know through neuroscience is that there are dozens of different pathways through which kids, uh, this is causal pathways, through which kids might uh, develop the behaviours that we do diagnose as autism. Um, the other thing is that those uh, causal pathways are absolutely um, are shared with other uh, conditions like ADHD, um, uh, uh, developmental language disorder, and many, many others. Uh, what, what then happened, however, is in the interim, um, our, our systems, our, our clinical systems, health systems, our disability systems, and our education systems uh, started to become a little bit addicted to the notion of um, there are clear, neat categories because it was really easy, or at least it provided some surety and some clarity around how we could start to plan our services. But the unfortunate reality is that kids don't fit into neat boxes. No, no child fits into neat boxes. I've never seen a pure child, or, you know, in inverted commas, pure autism yeah. in my life. Um, and so what has happened is we now have a whole lot of systems where uh, uh, we have, um, you know, with diagnostic-based triggers for interventions that are not actually serving the kids that we seek to understand and to support. And so uh, we have we have places where kids will only get support if they receive a diagnosis of autism, um, and yet there are other kids who have significant functional needs as well, but they won't get the support they need because they're not fitting into that neat box, even though those neat boxes are not an accurate reflection of biological reality or behavioural reality. And so we've got to the point now where, well, what's the purpose of a diagnosis? Um, and, and I've thought about this really deeply because, and this really goes back to the who cares, um, question. Certainly, um, a diagnosis is fundamentally important for um, caregiver understanding um, about who their child is. What, what are these struggles that I've had over the last few years? As well as, as as the child grows up, it's fundamentally important for that individual to understand more about how and why um, they experience the world in a certain way. And, and that identity and explanation is really, for me, the sole reason why diagnosis can be important. However, um, there aren't great other reasons for it. In terms of clinical management, I think we kid ourselves sometimes that a diagnosis is more helpful than it is. Um, uh, the, a label of autism doesn't tell me a huge amount about how I can best tailor my supports to support that individual. Same with DLD. Um, but certainly it doesn't tell us um, anything in terms of how we can uh, best provide support at a policy level for an individual. So I'm really at this point questioning what the purpose of a diagnosis beyond understanding is, and um, is it actually in the way of providing the best support to kids? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm gonna jump in and say two points that I share with everybody clinically, but also in my training at the DLD project is, um, I talk about a label is simply a cluster of observable characteristics and that's, all it is, you know, it's kind of this group of things that we've then said, that's what this is called, but it's kind of arbitrary, really. It doesn't necessarily mean that, um, you know, it was always there. Um, we could call it lots of different things, but the way in which we've decided, for example, to call ASD or DLD, you know, is these are the sort of observable characteristics. Um, but talking to your point around labels, you know, I, I've been saying for quite some time that having a label of DLD clinically doesn't actually tell me how to treat. And, you know, we've talked about, you know, do we do the receptive expressive mixed? What's the argument? And I've, you know, clinically and in training moved well away from using those sorts of terms and actually said, can we actually describe, you know, what are we actually seeing? What are they doing well? And where are their areas of need? Because the actual label doesn't tell me exactly what sort of intervention I need to provide as a clinician at all. I, I completely agree. And I think actually um, diagnoses have 
let us as clinicians and, and researchers um, get lazy, a little bit lazy. Um, we all understand at the clinical level that what we're seeking to understand is that beautiful child in front of us in all their challenges and their wonders. Um, what we're seeking to understand is who a child is, not what they are. And I think systems that for very well-meaning reasons 20, 30 years ago that developed around this child has a diagnosis of X, therefore they deserve Y support. Um, uh, I think that while they were well-meaning, they've actually um, caused clinical behaviour to go towards a more diagnosis-focused support, then actually we want to understand who a child is, not what they are. So I completely endorse what you said. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Which brings me nicely to, I mean, you're really no, well-known for obviously your research in autism and particularly relating to that sort of assessment and diagnostic space. Can you actually explain to our listeners, because obviously many of them are familiar with DLD, um, but they may not be familiar with what are the characteristics that might suggest an autism diagnosis? Yeah, so, so just like DLD, um, uh, autism is a neurodevelopmental condition, which simply seems, means that something happens early on in development to make the brain develop differently to what we typically expect. Um, now, we don't know enough about the genetics um, and we don't know enough about um, um, the neurobiological pathways. And so we diagnose based on behaviour. And that's the same with every neurodevelopmental condition. Um, the behaviours that we use to diagnose autism are in two domains. So the first one is social and communication uh, interaction difficulties. Um, and, and that is particularly where overlap with DLD may arise. And I can talk about that in more detail. But the second domain is around restricted and repetitive behaviours and, in, and interests. And these are a lot of the characteristic things that you might see in the media. So um, characteristic hand movements, particularly routinised behaviours, uh, as well as sort of sensory differences as well. Now, in terms of differential diagnosis, I mean, with the caveat that uh, uh, diagnosis can be important for understanding and, and, um, and, and identity, but not necessarily overly important for clinical management. But in terms of differential diagnosis, it's really that second domain where we start to see differences with DLD. Kids with DLD will often have social communication differences. They may derive um, from their fundamental differences in, in the way they develop structural language um, and, and sort of border onto pragmatic language challenges, but they won't, will not show to the same extent, or, and this is where the differential comes around, um, those sensory difficulties and differences that we uh, see in kids on the spectrum as well as stereotyped and repetitive behaviours. So it's really that second domain where we see a difference between kids with autism and, and, and kids with DLD. Yeah. And I was going to say, I will jump in. It sounds a little bit like a little, a bit of a self plug here, but um, the sensory was something that uh, I was particularly interested in. And I've done some work with the lovely Kate Simpson at the Autism CRC um, and my colleagues, uh, Marlene Westerfeld and Jessica Painter. And we actually looked at uh, the sensory um, needs of young people with DLD and looked at ASD and they do actually have sensory differences, but they can be quite different. Um, so it's nice to actually see, you know, there might be some other areas that we can actually start to look at differentially to say, oh, well, how do we actually support their needs? Yeah, fa fantastic piece of research. I'll be sure to look that up because that, that, that just shows the blurry lines between these two different labels. And, and um, at what point do we start to go, well, what's the, what's the fundamental use of these labels? So really interesting. I can't wait to read that. Yeah, so we've kind of touched on then, you know, I think we both agree that there's overlap between neurodevelopmental conditions and that, um, you know, children don't neatly fit in boxes. What would be some of the similarities, um, you know, that, you, that clinicians might see between ASD and DLD? You know, we've talked about some of the social communication aspects. Is there anything else that uh, clinicians might need to be thinking about? Yeah, so it's a, first thing to say is that autism, um, the way that kids on the autism spectrum present um, varies as much as humanity varies. And so we will have kids who have um, really difficult, great difficulty learning verbal language and, and um, may always struggle to communicate with verbal language all the way through to people who are, you know, highly articulate um, um, uh, language sort of effervescing out of them. Um, but there will always be something a little bit different to um, the way that they communicate, um, particularly in social communication. And so I think areas where there might be overlap is, are in those early years, um, and particularly those developmental pathways 
to sort of, you know, what one would call a diagnostic age of three, four, five, six, um, where, uh, and particularly for kids on the spectrum who are struggling to develop language. Um, and, and often there's really, it's really difficult to, to understand which pathway a, let's say an 18 monther is likely to go on based on how they present. Because of course, 18 monthers and 12 monthers and six monthers have an enormous array of behavior, but it's really difficult to identify what would be clinically relevant behavior. Um, and so I think that's particularly where the challenge lies. Um, is in those uh, early pathways to a diagnostic age at sort of, I would say, six to 24 months. And um, my, my point here is, is probably at that, that age, a diagnosis is neither here nor there. It is an important part of the clinical pathway. And I do want to say that because a diagnosis is an important part of the clinical pathway, but it's not the start. The start of the clinical pathway is identifying the child in all of their strengths and challenges and providing support and and, and actually in, the, in you know mid-September we'll be having a paper coming out just showing the results of a clinical trial of, of providing intervention to kids at nine to twelve months of age um, who are showing early autism flags but at the same time they could well be on a path for developmental language disorder and um, bit of a sort of a, 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 um, a teaser but the results are astounding um, and, and how we can best provide support is by actually going, diagnosis is important, but that can happen down the track. Let's actually meet the child and the family at that very first point when they need us. Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the key points here is that, um, you know, autism is a is a spectrum, you know, and, and there's such diversity. I think often in the media or in social media, we often see amazing orators. Like I have been blown away by the autism advocacy because, I mean, that was my roots. That's where I've come from. And just listening to some people speak, you know, with their own voice around the condition is so much more powerful than, I mean, you or I, you know, standing up and speaking on the topic. The media generally doesn't want to talk to me because I don't have the condition, you know. Um, they want to talk to people who are affected. Um, but the one thing that I find really fascinating about autism research in particular is the fact that some children don't have an oral language disorder. They may have a social communication, you know, but in terms of that oral language difficulty that all people with DLD will have, that's, you know, something that they may be, you know, really great or above average in their oral language, but still struggle with some of those other areas that we've we've talked about. Um, and so that's why in the Catalyze Consortium, you know, they did bring up that point around a language disorder associated with a biomedical condition, which for me is a really great distinction clinically because I have, I work with, I think people think I only work with people with DLD, which I think is quite hilarious because I'm like, I definitely work with all, all children clinically um, and of which several uh, people with autism or autistic individuals, however they like to be referred to. And some of them have oral language disorders and some of them don't. And so it's really a key differentiation for them. Or the other pathway that I found really fascinating is young children who've started as primarily with minimal verbal skills, who when you assess them, I've got a young man just recently who at seven or eight scores within the average range where he was unassessable on a standardized language measure five years ago or four years ago. So I just think that the change in their language system is absolutely phenomenal, um, you know, uh, across the clinical pathways, especially, which is yeah. really interesting. Absolutely. Um, now I'm I'm old enough. I'm old enough now. <laughs> um, uh, as I as I rapidly hurtle towards middle age, um, um, to, to have you know to have kids I saw clinically um, reach adulthood and beyond, and mm. and um, you know I still remember. Well, I still remember. I was contacted about a month ago by a five year old who first came to see me, who was absolutely nonverbal. He could mm. not say a word, and. Um, amazing family amazing child through the hard work of themselves and yes the the, the clinical support team are around, around them but absolutely themselves that bloke just um is highly verbal and just graduated university and it's extraordinary the clinical change that we can see yeah. i think the other variable just to throw in is of course that our diagnostic systems change over time mm. um you know the 1980s so dsm3 um, the third edition of the diagnostic manual put out by the american psychiatric association that was where autism was introduced and to get a diagnosis of autism you had to really show a very severely affected phenotype They're typically kids or in fact almost solely kids who were intellectually disabled mm. um, no language 
um, and very significant repetitive behaviours. Then, of course, you know, in 1994, the DSM-4, the fourth edition of the manual came out um, and, it, you know, broadened the diagnostic scope. So people without it, um, intellectual disability, so people with um, in, uh, intellectual quotients within the normal range or above started to receive diagnosis. So, it, you, you know, that these, these things aren't static and they have changed as we've our own understanding um, of, of, of humanity has evolved. And I think the, the, the shift from SLI to DLD is a perfect example of that as well. Absolutely. I think clinicians are saying to me the most, uh, you know, when we do training around interventions and supports and strategies, you know, when I used to work with SLI, they had this, you know, IQ of 85 and above, which has its own sort of natural, you know, this cognitive capacities and skills that are demonstrated in that range. Whereas now we've really demonstrated that that low average range is very inclusive of a DLD diagnosis. And people are saying, actually, things that I was doing 10 years ago or even five years ago, I'm needing to really rethink how to include children in that lower average range who may still struggle with particularly working memory, um, you know, the phonological processing associated with that, um, transitioning to using those skills in learning. And I'm like, yep, but that's because we've basically wide, widened the catchment and there is, you know, this arbitrary distinction then between DLD and an intellectual disability. But, you know, yeah. these people are going to need oral language support. Completely, and, and and diagnoses have been extraordinarily helpful to policymakers and mm. and to, to systems because there's an inbuilt sort of you're in you're out kind of thing that that a nice neat discrete yes or no provides. And please don't get me wrong, I'm certainly not saying um, there has been sinister intent um, um, for that, but there there is nevertheless such a very clear and stark understanding now that that kind of discrete yes or no, you're in, you're out, is entirely doing a disservice to the broad spectrum of kids out there who require support. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying this from a vantage point of autism has typically been a you're in kind yes. of scenario, but um, I've sort of seen, uh, I've seen dozens uh, of kids over the years who uh, have significant functional needs and without perjuring myself with a diagnosis, you know, providing a diagnosis of autism where it's not warranted, mm. um, it's 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 difficult to see how they'll get support. So um, a lot of my role now is to uh, provide policymakers with new ways of understanding developmental differences and new ways that we can actually uh, provide support to those who need it the most. The challenge is, is that we're going from a black and white system to a grey system. That's not an easy shift for any government, but it's the right shift. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that when particularly, I, you know, sat in on all of the early discussions around the NDIS and the discussions around a functional, you know, assessment and, you know, needs-based assessment and needs-based funding that was just, you know, was the original sort of discussions to what was implemented was very much, you know, here's a list in or out. And that was really hard for a lot of people. So, you know, a lot of the advocacy work we're doing at the moment is around um, funding in schools and, you know, do we go funding category first, then diagnosis? No, let's get the diagnosis yeah. if we need it right and then fit in, look at funding categories. But the same thing with, you know, NDIS, it's a lifelong condition, but it's not on list A. Yeah. How do so we advocate I, around that? You know, it's a, I'm, I'm glad you bring up the NDIS. And so for international people, the National Disability Insurance Scheme is a big reform that's happening in Australia, which is essentially taking disability from a state-based responsibility. We have a very strong state-based system in Australia to a shared um, responsibility between the, the Commonwealth of Australia and, and the states and, and hopefully providing standardised care. And absolutely, the legislation is around needs-based um, support. So it's meant to be diagnosis agnostic or diagnosis neutral or whatever the term mm. you'd like to use. But of course, the implementation of that legislation actually reinforced the importance of diagnosis for getting access. Now, there has been a reset um, on that. And uh, the lists uh, that, that you referred to, Sean, um, around, um, you know, if you've got this condition, you're straight in. Um, I don't expect they'll be there for much longer. And yeah. I think they're likely um, already to be to be gone. And, and, and a lot of um, my discussions um, I've been quite involved with the policy discussions around the NDIS have been around that desire, that, that great importance right up front, even before you start to consider what diagnosis a child, you know, child's behaviour may best represent. 
um, it, it's about identifying their strengths and challenges. And so we, um, the agency, the National Disability Insurance Agency commissioned us to, to, to write the national diagnostic guideline for how you diagnose autism. Huge reform in terms of um, we've diagnosed autism differently between the states in response to Absolutely. those state systems, but we need to actually have a, a national system now. And in that diagnostic guideline, we put right up front the very first step in any diagnostic um, uh, assessment is a functional assessment, not understanding what a child is. First, understand who that child is and then refer for supports based on that. But then beyond, if that those behaviours the child um, demonstrates is representative of something, then maybe look at a diagnosis. But right up front, who is this child? Yeah. So I think I'm, I'm looking at, you know, some of those questions I sent you. I think we're, we're, we've, we've discussing a lot. So I think what I might do is um, move on to talking about the some of that those processes. And one of the things that I talk about a lot, and I said a lot to that a lot today, but I keep it's because I keep on banging my drum on it, is that DLD tends to be diagnosed in isolation by a speech pathologist, um, whereas autism tends to be diagnosed perhaps by a doctor or, or a you know, multidisciplinary team. Um, do you see that there might be a role for multidisciplinary assessment for DLD? And, you know, are there any learnings from your work in this ASD diagnostic process, these national guidelines, that you think might be helpful to share? Yeah, great, great question. And and um, I wish I could give an easy answer. Mm. Um, the, the, the biggest answer that I can give is flexibility is absolutely key. Mm. Now, um, in the National Diagnostic Guideline for Autism was a really willing process and, and um, uh, you know, I came out at the end a little bit bruised and battered because of, of, of how important um, all of these various professions uh, are in terms of the process and, mm. and how do we ensure that all of their importance is recognised. Um, but at the same time, um, we need to make the process efficient effective and working for families. And so the fundamental for me is we need to provide families with the expertise that best help them explain their child or, or to understand their child. Um, there will absolutely be a role for OTs in some kind of aspects of certain kids' um, management um, and a, an assessment, and that would go for DLD as well. If you, bra you break it down, um, let, let's just actually um, go towards, uh, uh, you know, let's go to that point where a child is entering a clinic. When a child enters a clinic, yes, you might receive a referral and say, yes, query autism. But what we're saying is this query, query developmental difference. And um, we need to make sure that we're, we're covering all bases for understanding who that child. Um, certainly, if the child's being referred with a primary language um, um, challenge, uh, then certainly speech is an important role. But um, the speech is trained enough to understand whether an OT should be involved. Should there be an understanding that they're, they're a family um, uh, dynamic, uh, uh, you know, issues that need to be also addressed within that. So the Sykes role becomes important. Mm. Um, I, I guess what I'm saying here is that we need to, um, all kids need to be looked at by a multidisciplinary team. But within that, within that process, there has to be flexibility to streamline it. The, the, the challenge that I see, and, and, and one thing that we've put into the diagnostic guidelines for autism, is that um, there are not not all kids require a multidisciplinary uh, team, and 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 the requirements for a multidisciplinary team to receive a diagnosis has driven wait lists through the roof, um, has driven extraordinary costs for family, all of, all of which um, didn't need to be there, where a family could actually receive a diagnostic assessment and evaluation and a very accurate one um, with a streamlined process, um, uh, and and you know it'd be nice and nice and quick. And so um, uh, there needs to be flexibility within whatever process. So the basic thing for me is that all kids need to be evaluated on what they come and on how they come. Yep. Um, and but but and so one sort of template for a diagnosis has to have flexibility to uh, uh, be able to be accommodating kids with enormous complexity, um, as well as kids where there is a very clear diagnosis present. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think. Um... You know, I, I put in this as a little bit of a plug because one of the things that we've struggled with as clinicians for a long time is that SLI previously was an exclusionary 
diagnosis, right? And so people still are applying that exclusionary approach to DLD, which is actually a bit of a challenge. And so one of the recommendations I often make to clinicians is that I will diagnose DLD and then put a little caveat in saying, you know, if, if another condition that com comes to light through further assessment that better supports them as an individual, then we'd call it a language disorder associated with that condition because Di diagnosis is dynamic. I'm not a crystal ball gazer. I don't know about you, Andrew, but I'm not able to read into the future for every child I come across. And um, I, I want to make sure that there is, you know, I think particularly health professionals, but specifically maybe um, the speechies who might be listening in, speech pathologists listening in, that we kind of want to get it right the first time. And in fact, I think that we need to be really kind to ourselves that we're not magic, um, that we're not crystal ball gazers, and that we can actually diagnose something like a language disorder and say it's developmental, you know, until further information comes to light. I've had children who've transitioned from having a developmental language disorder to saying having an autism diagnosis because it better represented their pathway of support that was kind of, you know, needed. Um, or funding that might be associated with it versus I've had children that were diagnosed with autism where I can tell you, you know, unequivocally they, as, an, as a young adult, it's unlikely that they, you know, still represent that characteristics. You know, they may be better fitted with something else, but rescinding an ASD diagnosis or, you know, an autism diagnosis is something we don't generally see. Um, so, you know, there's some of that like flexibility, I think that we need to ease into our practices because we're all human, you know, and we all see things in a different way, so. And, and, and um, probably to, to just to return to a point before is that we, we have to have systems that rep reflect that. Yes. And, and um, this is one of the things that I've been in, kind of involved in in terms of the implementation of the national guideline is that there's great uptake of the guideline everywhere in Australia. There's been tens of thousands of, um, of downloads and, and certainly big um, practices have adopted the guideline very quickly. However, they're working in a system um, that is taking time to catch up with that type of best practice. And so I agree, we absolutely have to be kind. And, and the best thing that we can do as clinicians and, and you know, reflecting as a parent as well is, is, to, is to show that family that you get their, their child. I understand your child. I understand this, your challenges as caregivers as well and, and, and your love for your child. And, and this is how I can best describe your child at the moment. And this is how I can best support their child. Now, that, that, and, and, but beyond that, there has to be systems that reflect that best practice. That is best practice. How do we work with systems that aren't reflecting that, that are driving us towards um, our certainty when certainty doesn't necessarily exist? Yeah. Um, that, that's a great challenge for individual clinicians. Yeah. And I think that what individual clinicians really want to know is, you know, you've mentioned some of these attributes earlier. At what point do they on refer for if you, you know, you're seeing a child that's come through, often this is um, sole traders or private practitioners, um, maybe even school based speech pathologists are saying to me, how do I know when to refer on? So you said some of the attributes earlier around the yeah. social communication aspect, which can overlap and repetitive, um, you know, behaviours. Are there any, you know, just really, um, you know, key um, characteristics that you'd be saying to clinicians? These would be things I'd really look out for, things that would really help. Yeah, yeah. Look, it'd be certainly those um, yeah. that those uh, B domain type yeah. behaviours, and and it would be things such as the um, repetitive behaviours. So you know, lining up of toys, uh, mm. um, the hand movements, flapping of hands, flicking of fingers, um, and significant sensory issues such as hyper um, uh, sensitivity, so oversensitivity or hyposensitivity, often seen in touch. Um, um, but of course, those broader developmental issues, such as um, motor, motor is a hugely um, um, a noteworthy sign. If we're seeing motor delays, it's often the very first canary in the coal mine that broader developments um, difference. Yep. Uh, uh, yeah, th 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 that is that th those kind of broader things are quite key. Toileting, um, yep. standing, all, all of those kind of things. More broadly, when do you refer? You refer when you. Um, feel that you're uh, starting to struggle um, and to understand who a child is uh, again. And um, I, perhaps I'm trying to um, provide um, simplicity when it's not there. When would I refer? I would refer when I feel like I am not understanding who this child is to the extent of my expertise and the extent of my experience. And, and that, that his family would be better served by another individual who has that experience and expertise. People, we know as clinicians, um, what's the the what's what 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 
what is we within our wheelhouse and what might not be. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but but really, that's for me a very good indicator as to when a referral is 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 required because ultimately that's who we're there to serve. Perfect. I think I want to come back to something we discussed at the beginning because. Uh, you know, we want to move beyond diagnosis, right? You know, diagnosis is such a, you know, um, moment in time for a lot of families. And it's really important to then consider this interventions and supports needed for that individual. But a label or condition doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's going to follow the same process. I think we've talked about this, you know, no two children with autism or DLD are going to be the same. So what are your thoughts on moving beyond those existing preconceptions of clinical pathways? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm in favour of it. Um, I'm. Uh, I, I just think that any sober reading of um, of not just the literature but just clinical practice is that kids are not. They're not little boxes. They're, sorry, they're not. They're not people who fit in little boxes. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't want to know what how I can best support the average child. I want to know how I can support this beautiful child in front of me right now. Um, the, the challenge, of course, is that we need to have systems that reflect that complexity. The NDIS in Australia um, is a system that is legislated to reflect that. It's legislated to reflect that kids receive support. And then, of course, the NDIS is across the, the whole of the, um, uh, of the life course, but we're talking about kids in particular here. It's legislated to reflect kids who have a developmental need or a functional need and to receive support based on that, irrespective of what box they might best reflect. Um, but more importantly, I, I actually think that our clinical pathways need to change. Uh, typically with autism, we, we still do adopt a wait and see approach. I, I think it's the same with DLD that, you know, kids develop differently. And, and often in the first year of life, we understand kids are developing differently. You don't need a hugely trained clinical eye to understand when kids are developing differently. But certainly with autism, I, I said most often in the second six months of life, we see kids with some behaviours, we go... You look, we're on a path here, um, but we adopt a wait and see philosophy. Again, really going back to 30 years ago where we didn't really know um, where kids were going to end up just because of the evolution of the diagnostic category of autism. But, um, and so we would wait till a child received a diagnosis at two or three and we go, right, we know what we're dealing with here. Let's let's start, let's start our Jump intervention. In. Yeah, totally. Um, and, and of course, by that time, we've missed, and anyone who's seen a child develop language just knows how amazing those first two years of life are. I mean, it's extraordinary what those little brains can do. Mm. And we're missing that with our therapies, um, all because our systems are not geared up to receive referrals for kids that young. Um, I, I alluded to previously, we, we We've just we will have published in a, in a month or so about uh, sorry in September or so um, a um, the results of a really large clinical trial where we identified kids nine to twelve months of age showing early signs early behavioural signs associated with later autism. The kids may or may not have been on a path, but we said hmm, there's something a bit different about the way this child's developing, and we provided intervention at that age. We wanted to see can we fundamentally change their developmental trajectory, really to reduce their barriers in life, and the results. I, I, I'll talk about it a lot when it comes out, uh, are stunning. They're, they're truly stunning in terms of kids who received intervention at that age. Their outcomes are extraordinary compared to the our current wait-and-see approach. Um, that, that, to me, is all the evidence we need to, to actually look towards another new clinical pathway where we provide support to kids, irrespective of which path they're on. We, we provide intervention to kids based upon who they are at nine to 12 months of age um, or even even younger when we identify developmental difference and that could make such a massive difference to their lives. I just want to mm. sort of just, just to finish that point is really just to say that we're not looking to therapise autism out of a child. It's exactly the opposite. We're not trying to change who a, child are, who a child is. We're trying to understand who they are and provide supports based on who they are. Mm. And that, 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 that's really what preemptive, what we're calling preemptive intervention, which I think is the new clinical model. It's the next generation of interventions. That's what we're looking at here. It's understanding who kids are right from that first moment of time and uh, not waiting. Yeah, and I think the watch, wait and see kind of approach is really letting lots of children down, isn't it? Uh, particularly the um, the boys, in my experience, you know, that's, uh, oh, they're a boy, they'll, they'll catch up in their own time, which is a big, you know, misnomer out there that seems to 
permeate in every sector well, of society. It does. It does, Sean. And, and and I guess I just keep fundamentally. I mean, one one of um, a, a trait um, that my wife says it was very endearing when we were dating, but now we're married. It's hell. Um, is that <laughs> is that I question I question everything. Yeah. Um, and 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 so. Am I happy with all of the clinical outcomes, life outcomes that I see with the kids that come through our clinic and our research? Absolutely not. I'm definitely happy with so many of them because uh, just the barriers that they're leaping over mm. through hard their own hard work and that of their family, but mm. certainly their clinical team as well, um, is extraordinary. But I no way am I happy with some of the outcomes that I see. You know, there's no no way a child should be going to. Um, um, secondary school, you know, with with toileting troubles still, mm. you know, this is stuff that we can support. And so what what has led that child to get to that point? And is our clinical model or is our clinical pathway contributing to that? And my, my fundamental um, belief, in fact, we have evidence is that, yes, it is. We, we are missing out on extraordinarily important times to support that family, to support that child. Um, and we need to we need to shake it up. We need to shake up that clinical model. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, in my experience, uh, you know, I, I work with young people who have autism and, you know, come in and sometimes they haven't had a language assessment done in quite some time. And it's like, um, you know, they've got the label, for example, and then it's like, well, this is the intervention that falls out of that. But for some reason, you know, I, I've had children who've had no language intervention for eight years, who've got significant oral language difficulties in high school, because it hasn't really been identified the whole way along. And um, just because somebody has a label doesn't necessarily tell you everything about them as an individual. And which then leads me into the whole, well, let's do assessment informed intervention uh, rather than doing interventions because somebody's got a label, which is yeah. sometimes what we do see clinically is, oh, these are the sorts of things we do with people with this label. Um, yeah. And so yeah. where if you haven't assessed it, how do you know that they need that support? In fact, it might be a strength. And can I just, I could not agree with you more. I, I just want to sort of riff off that to say how important language intervention is. Mm. Um, you know, my originally studied as a speech, but really my, my role is around um, nowadays is really understanding all the various aspects of, of kids and supporting that. What we absolutely know through our clinical trials is that fundamental social and communication interventions early on help children understand the world. What we see with kids who develop differently is that there are behaviours that develop in a response to them not understanding their world. They restrict their environment so they can make sense of it. By providing kids that avenue that uh, through social and communication abilities to understand the world, um, that they're actually, it's going to reduce a further disability developing because they are actually able to experience the world in a different way. So um, uh, the, the, the role of educators, speech language therapists, um, uh, uh, pathologists to, to, to really get in and provide support is just so fundamental. It's not just a trying to provide support for some child uh, for a child who may have developed um, uh, language difficulties, it's actually, uh, to a large extent, it, it, it can actually preempt other difficulties and mitigate them emerging. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and clearly any of those interventions need to have a really strong evidence base. And this is something that I know that you're um, equally passionate about. Can you talk us through the process of developing evidence-based guidelines, such as in autism? You know, what's actually involved? How do these guidelines help people, such as clinicians yeah. and families? So the first thing that's involved is a thick skin. Um, and I don't know if I <laughs> had that. <laughs> yeah, that's the, I don't know if I had that when I started. Um, yeah. the, the first thing, yeah, really the first thing is an appetite and, and to say that actually I'm going to make a choice to say that the way things are right now are not good enough. Um, and, and so then that has to carry you through what is typically a pretty willing process, that things are not good enough and I'm making a choice to be part of that change. Um, when you're developing guidelines, um, oh, there needs to be a gap. There, there clearly needs to be a gap. And, and um, uh, I was lucky enough to, to just chair the process um, for the National Diagnostic Guideline for Autism and we're about to start on a new guideline, um, which I'll co-chair with David Trembath, um, around early intervention um, in Australia for, for, for um, autism uh, in early intervention. And that's going to be a really interesting process too. Um, the, the gap we identified is that there wasn't any uniform process through which kids are assessed and diagnosed, and that was a real problem. Um, 
the, when, when we talk about evidence-based practice, it's really important that people understand evidence-based practice is certainly not a cookbook approach. And by that, what I mean is that um, I read this paper, therefore this is what I must do. That, that That's just not evidence-based practice in any field, let alone a field um, such as uh, uh, developmental differences where there is a lot of grey um, because kids, kids are, you know, all shades of humanity. Evidence-based practice is really tripartite for me. One is certainly the empirical literature. What do we know from the empirical literature in controlled trials, um, uh, in, in dispassionate understanding and observations of, of, um, uh, of our environment? What, what do we know appears to be best practice? That's our fun foundation. But then layered on top of that, what we have to actually apply as well is uh, clinical wisdom, number one. Um, um, clinical wisdom is super important as to how we operationalise that empirical evidence. And the second one is consumer, um, client, patient uh, views, and particularly those contextual factors that absolutely influence those empirical papers that we read. So use empirical evidence as a foundation, but consulting and in bringing in clinical wisdom, clinicians have so much to add, along with contextual factors, particularly individual preferences. It's those three things combined. That's how you develop clinical recommendations. Absolutely. I'm nodding vehemently for because people can't, you know, see me, see me on a podcast. <laughs> I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason for that is I actually do an activity with in my training where I actually talk about, um, I actually have the three points, you know, of, of evidence on a, a triangle, on a rating scale. How much do you use and how much do you value each of these areas? And I, I quite, I speak quite honestly in that as an early career speech pathologist, I thought that I valued my client's input a lot. And in reality, I was so egocentric to try and do what I thought was the best job, you know, that it, in reality, it probably wasn't as good as it could have been. Um, but I look at, you know, how much do I value research? I value it 10 out of 10. How much do I use it in language intervention? You know, we've still got massive gaps. I wish I had a cookbook that told me how to provide language intervention, but I seriously don't. And so we know we need to draw on this evidence. And then some of the children we work with aren't representative in the population studied anyway. So, you know, we have to make these evidence informed decisions. And I think that uh, when we talk in about evidence-based practice, often as, as clinicians, I will query, are we talking about evidence-based practice? Is it research informed in terms of, you know, are you just focusing on the research that says about this, or is it actually that, that we've considered all variables. And yeah. often when people talk about evidence-based practice, they're literally actually talking about research-informed practice. You know, what is the research that tells us about this area? And I think that yeah. we need to get better at communicating about that. I, I think I think you're exactly right. I think um, educators of, of, of new clinicians and, and new educators um, need, to, need to state right up front that if you're looking for a, um, a, a manual that says, this amount of intervention for this child um, or this um, particular type of intervention for this child, you're in the wrong profession um, because that is what we're here to train you to do, to make those clinical judgments based on a range of pieces of evidence, that being empirical evidence, that your experience that you acquire across your career and also what the family wants. Yeah. I mean, just game plan something. Um, uh, we have a you know, number of clinical trials out that will show a particular type of intervention for a particular um, 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 behaviours in a particular child may be most effective. Um, that's the empirical evidence. What happens if that family has three other children who um, all require um, love and support, and if those fam and if those children don't get that, then their family functioning will decrease, which will then, you know, reduce the support that the child who has, diff um, you know, need the other additional needs um, receives. That clearly is not going to be evidence based practice because you are, you know, you are following a cookbook um, um, and willingly walking your family off the ledge because you know that that's not going to be the best support. So that's when your your that third one kicks in, which is clinical wisdom. I know that this. I know that that's what the empirical evidence says but I also understand that this family has needs beyond me so you know what maybe actually a term off you know time away from autism um, um, might actually be um, a, a, the, the most effective thing that I can do to support that family yeah. and that that's where um, I think clinical educators and, and educators of educators mm. um, actually play an important role 
we're not here to actually teach you this. We can show you guidelines, but they're frameworks through which your clinical judgment is shaped. Yeah. Look, I, I, I'm throwing my hands in the air because I, I actually have been trialling clinically um, breaks from speech pathology intervention, which clinicians often look at me and go, well, they've got a lifelong condition, so they need lifelong support. And I'm like, you know what? I get sick of taking my kids to swimming lessons or netball or, you know, I look for it not to be netball season for a while. So I have a break so that I have renewed vigor when I go back and I've been trialing these. Um, I, I book my therapy in 10 week blocks because, you know, we do goal setting and eight weeks of intervention and then review and then the cycle through again. And the thing that I've found is that that gap, that breath, it kind of gives people renewed vigor for coming back because they know that their child needs lifelong supports and they don't really want to be rocking up every week, you know, for the entirety of their life. So it's even looking at how do we look at intentional intervention at key points within a young person's life as well. You know, I've got a young person who I saw last year did really well, but I've also recommended they come and see me in term four because they're transitioning to high school. And I'd love to touch base with them and make sure they've got the right supports in place because that would be a really key touch point for, I think, yeah. many young people moving into secondary school. Sean, that, that raw honesty that you can provide families is just so important in, in, in therapy and in, 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 in how you support that family. The best gift you can give a family is understanding that you know them. You know their family, you know their child, you know their child, and in your mm. clinical way, you love their child and want to support mm. them. But but also that you know what that family needs. That honesty that you provide develops trust and develops a lifelong, you know, maybe a lifelong relationship mm. in which that you can actually provide the support that they need, not the support that they don't want. And 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 that kind of raw honesty in, in terms of saying, you know what, sometimes maybe you do need a break, and maybe you know I know that you've got this graduation coming up, or I know that's a particularly busy time at work what i can actually do is provide some things that you can do incidentally throughout this next term but let's have a bit of time off and let's come back a bit refreshed that kind of raw honesty develops trust that is the essence the absolute essence of the work that we do yeah look i think that you've got to understand how families work and often we are working with families and families might be a parent and a child or a grandparent and a child but we need to understand how they how it works and how it fits and sometimes I really detest rushing into diagnosis and rushing into you know all of a sudden pulling out all the bells and whistles because part of it is just can I get to know you for a little bit particularly I mean I've come from early intervention most of a lot of my caseload nowadays is adolescence you know if you've tried to twist an adolescence arm into coming to therapy it, you know it's it's tricky and you know talking to them about saying look I'm not going to force you to come but this is what we can do and actually getting their buy-in takes more than 30 minutes yeah. And so, you know, building that understanding is is, is hard. When, and developing agency. What, what, mm. what we can't ever underestimate is how disempowering a, a diagnosis or at least, a, you know, the commencement of clinical intervention can be. You have looked, you know, you parent um, have looked after and raised and wiped the bum of a child for mm. so long. And, oh, yes. and you know them inside and out. Um, um, and all of a sudden you're handing a child over um, yeah. and, and, and to people who you're just meeting and, and trying mm -hmm. to trust them. And, and what you just described is, um, you know, it, 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 it's actually providing greater agency to that family again to actually chart the course for their own life, which sometimes families want, sometimes they don't want, but ultimately um, it, it is in their hands with your support and providing them that agency is another important part of developing that trust that, again, is the essence, is the absolute essence. We aren't handing out pills. We are not elbow surgeons. Um, it's not us coming in, doing something and leaving. What it is is developing and working with families uh, and supporting them to support themselves. And what a privilege. You know, I wouldn't be a bloody elbow surgeon in a million years because you get the privilege of being intimately involved with a family. Mm at the time when they really, really need that support. What, what a privilege. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I'm conscious of time, Andrew, because we could keep talking all day. <laughs> I think we could. Uh, it's been great yeah, fun. <laughs> yeah, we could talk. We could do two podcasts on this topic, I'm sure. Um, but my next question is really around, um, I, I said to you earlier, you know, my, my background is in ASD and I, was, and I really became a clinician at that time when awareness of ASD was really growing. You know, we really saw um, some changes. Um, and I think that a part of that has also been the advent of increased social media and um, increased presence. And, and we've got that evolving diagnostic framework that we've talked about. What do you think 
those of us who are supporting people with D DLD could actually learn potentially from the autism advocacy movement? Oh, great question. Um, make noise. Yeah. Um, organise and make noise. So organise first um, and, and, and then make noise. Um, you know, squeaky wheel really does get the wheel in this. And, and mm. um, you know, I've talked a lot about, um, you know, the flaws of diagnosis. Um, hopefully I've also sort of countered that by saying it is important for understanding and, and identity. Mm. But, but, but in the case of DLD, which is, you know, um, a, a, a hidden and, and lesser known condition, diagnosis can play a really important role in advocacy. And, and I don't want to, um, I don't want to underplay that for families and, and clinicians as well. So, so I hope that context provide is, is a bit more helpful. And um, so organize um, uh, things like um, the DL, I'm talking DLD podcast, crucial um, things such as um, the lighted up um, or oh, that, that campaign, you know, around mm. around um, um, flying lights, etc., is is super important. Mm. Um, I think there are also things that DLD could learn that maybe the autism um, advocacy movement didn't do particularly well, and that 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 that's to work right from the start with families and particularly individuals affected. Um, mm. um, um, or, uh, and there's been a huge sort of um, uh, enlightenment um, that has come through a great struggle um, that that actually the whole nothing about us without us I was about to say exactly yeah, that yeah is 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 essential is absolutely essential um, people with DLD don't have a voice they might have struggles to to, to to exert that voice but they have a voice and that needs to be recognized so organize um, um, make noise but make noise um, together and with the right people yeah. which is a beautiful way of plugging the fact that DLD Awareness Day is on the 15th of October this year. So if you're listening in, um, those of us, I'll put on my rattled hat, our Raising Awareness of DLD hat, and saying that if you want to get involved, this year's campaign is actually focusing on educators, which was one of our goals for last year, but COVID really wiped that idea of getting people together in schools. Um, but it's think language, think DLD, because what we want to do is think, actually, could somebody have difficulties with communicating? And if so, maybe it's because they've got something like DLD, which we know has such a high um, prevalence and you know I, I always talk about prevalence data not because it's trying to pit conditions against each other but I say to people you know if you hear hooves think horses and and DLD is one of the most common neurodevelopmental conditions so think that it might be possible often we see people putting it down to lots of other things rather than what it actually might be which is DLD which often feels probably um, enough for some families you know yeah, yeah. so um, that's great. And we do have a number of light up events. We're very excited. This year, Niagara Falls is lighting up again in purple and yellow, which is pretty cool. And um, Ireland really led the way last year with 40 light up events all around the country and got some amazing coverage. So I think it is about getting people together and making some noise. I think I think if I could just say one more thing that I think is important is have a clear agenda. Mm. Um, uh, awareness is super important, particularly in a, um, in a lesser known um, area, um, um, but 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 certainly have a clear agenda. So what 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 is the um, what what is the outcomes you're seeking to achieve? Um, is it recognition um, through uh, you know fundings and support mechanisms? Have that right as the focus, and everything needs to drive towards that. Um, a a more unfocused um, sorry sorry an awareness campaign is brilliant, and this is really exactly I would say um, what, what DLD is, is is really needing. But can that drive to a specific aim? Because at the mm. point where it comes to talking to government, it's mm. what can we do? Yep. Yeah. What what's the ask? What's the ask? You got it. Yeah, absolutely. So just as we're sort of rounding up uh, the sort of end of our conversation, in your opinion, what, what would you really hope to see in the future for DLD and ASD, either whether it's in research or clinical work or, or service delivery? What are your sort of hopes? Yeah, look, I mean, there are two things that I'm really keen to do with the rest of my professional life. And number one is, is, is change the clinical pathway. We, we, we need to identify kids as early as possible so we can support them from the very first time that we, we identify a difference. And that means kids and families as well. So no more wait and see. It's thinking, you know, it's identify and act. And, and, and that's what I really want to support. And, and, and to do that, I think we've got a very willing clinical um, population. What we need is systems that reflect that, um, both uh, in terms of um, uh, longer term support, but, you know, initial financial support for actually uh, enacting that kind of pathway. But, but the, uh, the second thing is really around the roadmap. 
Um, I, I think at the moment, um, uh, we can provide greater guidance to clinicians um, and particularly um, providing uh, uh, greater support to broader clinicians who may not live and breathe this like I do. Um, and so uh, providing clinicians with a very clear understanding about best practice supports um, is, 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 is critical. And for that, that's around developing guidelines and getting that information in the people's hands um, that need it. And in terms of both DLD and, and ASD, for me, that's diagnosis agnostic approach. Let's identify the strengths and challenges and certainly diagnosis can be part of that pathway, but let's identify what they, you know, who this child is and what supports um, we can give families for them to choose, to be empowered to choose would best suit their family. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, one last question, Andrew. At the DLD project, we're really trying to focus on self-care and finding time to breathe in a very busy day. And I know that you're a very busy person as a, as a researcher and you've got a young family. So what do you do to look after yourself? Oh, um, well, for, for starters, I have a very... Um, I've developed a very clear understanding that um, balance is always like a seesaw. You know, nothing's ever perfectly in balance. There's not a single time in my professional life where I've gone, I've got this perfect balance between my home life and my, 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 my work life. So it's probably th firstly throwing that illusion out that, you know, sometimes the uh, work's going to be super heavy. Um, that's going to be the, the, the down arm and the, the up arm will be the... Um, uh, the uh, the yeah the home life and then it's going to swing back the other way so that's the first thing I think the other thing is that um, and this is going to sound pretty cliched and 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 I don't always achieve it um, but but I, I do know that that the, the kids that I brought into this world they're, they're actually the most important um, um, project that I'll have in in this life and and that so where there is time, um uh, where where i need or or they need for me to spend with them um and and this is very prescient because we're in book week in western oh, australia we so, are here oh, too oh Don't okay so so, so um, <laughs> i've got any number of parades that I, i'm due to go in and i haven't had to rejig re the diary but that's the point is that you're there and um people will understand the rescheduling i have that i have that flexibility which is a genuine privilege not everyone yeah. has that but but to understand and and reinforce even when it's hard that it's 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 super important that you do that. Yeah. I think particularly as I lead a, a really large team, sort of 50, 60 people, yeah. um, um, it's important that you me I also demonstrate behaviours. And um, so if you are a leader of a, of, of an organisation, it's really important um, that you put timers on your email. Look, you know to 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 to, to um, to uh, uh, try and meet that uh, aim of, of um, spending a lot of time with the kids. Of, of course, I will need to work into the night and that's not something I particularly like. That's just a reality. But, um, um, you know, we put, if I have to send emails, I'll put a timer on it so it only arrives yep. in that person's inbox the next day. Leave loudly. That's another thing. Um, if you need to leave to go and see the kids or if you need to leave, um, I mean, I leave at 5pm on the dot every day just because um, it's really important to me to, to have that time before bed. And, of course, then I'll go and do work later. Yes. <laughs> Le leave loudly. Let yeah. everyone know you're leaving and let them yeah. know why you're leaving. And, and, and that kind of modelling of behaviour is super important. Yeah. But, of course, none of this works. Um, I'm, I'm always failing at it. And, and then it's just being kind when you yeah. do fail. Absolutely. I have to say, um, being this, I'm the stay at home parent at the moment. And I think that there is a certain privilege in that it's tiring and exhausting. Um, but there is, you know, it's lovely to actually have built a career now around being flexible. And I think one benefit of COVID has been that we are being kinder to each other in being yeah. more flexible. And you're right, I actually work best at night. So I'm the sort of person who quite happily says good night to my children. Oh, mate. And then slide into the office. <laughs> oh, I would I would far prefer to be in front of Netflix, but but you know, this is the reality and, and it's an absolute sacrifice I'm more than willing to make. Yeah. But we we're all failing. We're all failing. But the most important thing is to try. Yeah. So just to recap, what would you really like our listeners to take away from today's chat? If you just had a couple of key points, what would they be? Oh, thanks, mate. Look, I've I've loved this. It's been great fun. Um, I, I think I think uh, I think th there are, there would be a number of things. Let's let's start with the first one, and that that really is is that 
we're all seeing the same kids. I, I've spent a professional life focusing on kids on the autism spectrum who receive a diagnosis of autism spectrum. But, but, but honestly, the same kid, the kids that I see when they're 9, 12, 18 months, they're the same kids that everybody within, who focuses on other diagnostic categories see. Mm. So let's actually combine forces and actually, um, you know, have a gestalt. You know, we are more than the sum of those parts. Mm. Who we are is about providing support to these kids, irrespective of which outcome they end, uh, end up at. Um, secondly, evidence-based practice is key. We work in an area that doesn't historically have um, strong evidence boundaries. Um, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to put them in, and and that that's a big corrective message, and um, and 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 it sometimes is a little bit um, painful um, to do that. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't try, but evidence is not just empirical literature. Empirical, it is empirical literature informed by clinical wisdom and individual context. Yeah. And, and and thirdly, make noise keep rattling cages, um, keep telling people how important this area is because ultimately there is nothing more important. You know, I, I was lucky early in my clinical life to be letting in on the biggest secret in, in, in the world and, and that that's that supporting each other, loving each other, nurturing each other and particularly kids who develop differently. There is no greater meaning in life and we're lucky to do it every day. So let's make sure we tell people about it. Absolutely. I've loved the humanity of our conversation. I think that it is um, great to hear that coming from somebody who is as esteemed in the community as you are, um, to just hear, I guess, that we're all humans at the end of the day, and we're all doing our best. And we're all, I think, working towards a really great future for all people with developmental conditions. So thank you for your time. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And, and you keep you keep killing them. Thank you to Andrew and Sean for that really interesting look at ASD and DLD and the crossover points. So much more to learn about that space. I can see um, a lot more collaborations coming, so watch this space. If you want to continue learning more about developmental language disorder and you missed the first International Developmental Language Disorder Research Conference, don't despair. You can still access the 80 plus research presentations from around the globe on demand at thedldproject.com. Thanks so much for joining us. If you like this podcast, please be sure to share it with your networks and make sure you tag uh, the DLD project so we can find more people and get the word out about DLD.